0: G'day folks and welcome, I'm Chris Faber and I'm TJ Steadman and you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to the uh, Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants.
1: Mm, Yeah, g'day everyone. So last week on the show we talked about the thorns that would come up out of the ground to discipline the man as a consequence of his rebellion. We saw how thorns were emblematic of discipline, and that discipline can sometimes come in the form of God's sovereign power over the forces of evil, which he can use for his own good purpose. And the classic example of that is the Apostle Paul and his thorn in the flesh, which he told us was a messenger of Satan. Speaking of messengers of Satan, uh, I'm still quite sick uh, from last week, so bear with me in my weird sounding voice. Uh, So we were looking at the way that The thorns came to represent the supernatural forces of evil in charge of the nations, and all those connections are really interesting, especially when you bring them forward and consider the way that God disciplined Israel by means of bringing the nations against them. And that's exactly what happened at the exile. So we've been reading about what happens to the man when he's receiving the discipline of God, and soon he'll be exiled from the garden where he will encounter the thorns. Today, we are reading Genesis 3 and verse 19, which is a continuation of God's speech to the man. And it says... You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. This verse starts with the mention of bread, which is a noticeable change from the beginning of the narrative where the humans were told that it was the fruit of the trees that would sustain them. We talked before about the teaching ministry of angels in scripture and how these divine beings were represented as trees in the garden which meant that their fruits were their teachings, and in as far as these divine beings cooperated with the will of God, they were permitted to provide instruction to the humans. Of course, there was one tree that was off limits, but we've talked enough about that. It's not a substitute for physical nourishment, but it is teaching us an important lesson. The most important tree in the garden was, of course, the tree of life. And again, as we talked about before, that tree is closely associated with proximity to God himself and the nourishment and sustenance that he provides in giving us life. It's a dramatic statement, then, to see God telling the man that now he will not receive the fruit of the trees, but he will have to make his own food. We need to be careful, though, that we don't take that as man living by his own instruction, by his own rules. Bread is a necessity in the ancient world as a staple food, but it doesn't provide the kind of nourishment that you get from fruit. So it is by no means a substitute. This is why we're told that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is the fruit of the tree of life, and bread cannot replace it. Jesus' statement in that verse, which you find in Matthew 4, verse 4, does not negate the need for bread. We live in a material world with a physically embodied existence, and we need ordinary nourishment to sustain our bodily function. Keeping ourselves in good health is essential to being able to perform the functions that God has made us to do. As I've said many times before on the show, the primeval history was not written to tell us things like why people eat bread, or how rainbows came to exist, or why snakes don't have legs. This is a theological text, not some kind of primitive science book. Bread represents human effort, and scripture continually reminds us that human effort is not sufficient to be able to do God's work. The necessity of this labor and effort is a consequence of man's pursuit of autonomy in a world that God created to be cooperative. And the result of this is that those with power get to be autonomous, while those without are the ones doing all the work. I mentioned the statement of Jesus in Matthew 4, but we need to keep in mind that he was quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3.
0: Yeah, in the wilderness, the Israelites made bread, but they made it from the manner that God provided, um, which we are told in the Psalms is the food of angels. That's Psalm seventy-eight twenty-five. So even when God did provide the food, the people still had to make their own bread.
1: Yeah, yeah. Speaking in symbolic terms, the production of bread involves taking from the produce of the field, And we talked about the field being the place where people can be found. It's human civilization, And of course, it takes a large number of grains to produce anything of substance. Grain is crushed and ground into dust, which represents the common experience of ordinary human beings before being formed into a single loaf of bread to be eaten and integrated into the body. That's fine when God is included as the centre of that image. That's what God is looking for. God wants us all incorporated into his body, the church. But it's a problem when we're incorporating everything into a centre which is based on ourselves. Because it means that the labours of the many feed the appetites of the few. And what separates those few from the many is human power and the greed that drives them to abuse that power for their own benefit. That's what we're going to see here and we'll see it again when we get into Genesis 10 eventually and we start talking about Nimrod, the hunter. We'll see who has their politics and their consumer culture held more tightly than their scriptures when we realise that there's nothing in this text that will support the ideals and dreams of capitalism. Just because God's words to the man are not described as a curse, that doesn't mean they are positive. But I digress. The next part of this verse that really presents a challenge for us is the statement by the sweat of your brow. The word translated as sweat here only occurs in this verse and nowhere else in scripture. It's actually very rare that you find anything in scripture that is translated as sweat. This word actually has closer associations to fear and trembling than it does to physical exertion. You can understand how the idea of sweating works well in translation. The idea is that the exertion of this continual movement or effort is what's causing the sensation of wetness on the face. And it doesn't get easier to understand when you consider that in Hebrew this is a reference to your nose, not your brow, or even your face. And the nose is often idiomatically used to talk about temper, or anger, or wrath. In the Hebrew expression, to be slow to anger is to be long of nose. As an example, we find this in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. So, if you wanted to take that literally, you would have to argue that God actually has a long nose and the text doesn't say anything about his temperament.
0: It's funny how when people want to take the Bible literally, they don't. Uh want to do it from the hebrew though i speak their favorite translation and then take that literally and they don't ever realized that the translation is interpreting those idioms for them maybe that's why we need the idiom preservation society
1: yeah so uh, perhaps we could have kept the phrase in there long of nose in the translation <laughs> mm, a uh, cheeky nod there to the book beautiful nonsense that was written by my good friend and co-host here mr chris bather who has put together a collection of amusing fictional works that he's written sometimes provoking sometimes gross sometimes heartwarming and hopefully quite funny although i can't guarantee that everybody will find it funny but i think if you can laugh at yourself you can laugh along with chris and you can find that on amazon just search for chris bather that's chris with a k and beautiful nonsense but that's enough shilling from us Uh, hang on a minute Answers to giant questions, out now on Amazon, in paperback or Kindle format. Okay, now we've finished shilling, we'll return to our regular program of noses as expressions of indignation. We have talked before about the way that God belittles the man by breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, teasing him, humbling him, to remind him that he has no breath of his own accord. The Hebrew language does have a word for the brow, or the temple of the forehead, That word is rakar, which is closely related to another word that we have studied exhaustively back in Season 1 when we were talking about the firmament. You might have thought that it sounded familiar because it is closely related to rakia, the word for expanse. It's the empty space between the hair above the forehead and the hair below the forehead, so literally it is the forehead. Both rakar and rakia derive from the same root which has these connotations of being spread out as an empty expanse. It's not about being beaten flat as if the hardness or the act of beating is the point. And I have to say that because people use the illustration of metal being beaten flat to make shields um, and that kind of thing to show how they think that it's about the hardness or thickness of the substance. That's because the verb for beating is rakah. And again, if we take that as expanding rather than hammering, we can straighten that whole mess out. Pardon the pun. Again, I have to remind my listeners, for those who came in late, the scripture is functional. It's not about what you're doing. It's about what you're achieving. You don't beat things for the sake of beating them. You beat things to spread out the material and thus expand it. That's the objective. That's the function of the verb. When you think about your forehead, I would hope that beating it against a hard surface is not the first thing that comes to mind. You should be thinking about that expansive skin that exists between your scalp and your eyebrows.
0: So this expression by the sweat of your brow is quite confusing then because we don't have the correct Hebrew term for the word brow. And likewise, we don't have the correct Hebrew term for sweat. So what's going on here? By the snot of your hairy nostrils? That can't be right. I'm I'm very confused.
1: Hmm. Uh, the reason for the confusion here is that our reading hasn't taken account of the end of the previous verse, which we didn't talk about last time on the podcast. So this time we're going to read the end of verse 18 and continue into verse 19. And this is going to show us why you can't just pick one verse and read it in isolation. Here we go. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. That's what we're used to hearing, isn't it? But we already established that these words sweat and brow do not belong in the text. We already discussed how these words have much stronger implications. Let's try it again using more direct translations of the Hebrew terms. You will eat the produce of the field by the fear of your indignation. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground now you might be thinking, well, Tim, you've really lost me now. I've got no idea what you're on about.
0: You know, I was just thinking, Tim, you've really lost me now. I've got no idea what you're talking about.
1: Well, let's not forget that we're still reading an archetypal narrative about a man who has been placed in authority yeah. over the people of the world. And the people of the world are the field. What the field produces is the green herbs that sprout from it. It's the produce of the common man that this man, the king, the ruler, the tyrant will eat because the ground yields only thorns for him. We were just reading that last week. And why will the people of the earth yield their produce to him? Because they fear his wrath. That's kingship in the ancient Near East. Again, this is a pronouncement of destiny coming from God, not an instruction. This is not God saying, go forth and tyrannize the world and multiply riches. This is God saying, you made the decision to eat that fruit, and now you're going to see what comes of it. Because the price of making yourself the judge is the burden of responsibility over those in your jurisdiction. Adam has become the first in a line of kings that ruled the earth before the flood. Do you remember when the people of Israel cried out to God demanding a king like the nations around them? What did God tell them that it would be like to have a king? This is 1 Samuel chapter 8 from verse 6 to verse 18. When they said, "Give us a king to judge us." Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, "Listen to the people, and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you." They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshipping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, These are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, or on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties, to plough his ground and reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain in your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you in that day.
0: Uh, that's exactly what God is telling the man in Genesis he's going to be a king like those of the nations and not like the man that God had uh, intended him to be.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when God tells the man that he will eat bread until he returns to the dust, it's a foretelling that his reign over his fellow man and the burden that he places upon them will not lift until he is dead. Instead of being the mediator between God and man that was envisaged in the Garden of Eden, the man will now become an obstacle and a burden and a source of fear instead of hope.
0: So why do you think the translators choose to go with a phrase like by the sweat of your brow instead of what you just showed from the text just then?
1: Well, just my opinion here, but I would speculate that it depends on your approach to the text and what you think it means before you actually read it. If you think that the primeval history is here to explain why life is unpleasant and uncomfortable and more effort than it should be, and you consider that the purpose of the text is to explain why that is, then you're going to arrive at a translation that pushes that narrative and tells us that For every little inconvenience of life, there is a biblical explanation that shows why we don't have the perfect Greek philosophical ideal that we're so enamoured with in our culture. But I think that just demonstrates a blatant disregard for the context so evident in the primeval history as a complete narrative. We've been talking since episode one of this podcast about the Mesopotamian backdrop behind the final received version of this text, which tells us so much about the way that this text has been put to use during the exili period, as a means of helping exiled Jews understand how they got in the position they're in, so that they're able to read the rest of their Bible as God's gradual outworking of a plan to set it all right again, beginning with Genesis 11 and the introduction of Abraham. The reason that everything in the world has become that much darker and more hopeless and more difficult and more sorrowful and more heartbreaking and isolated and afraid is because of the man, this man, who is one of us, this man who is all of us, We have chosen to make the world serve us instead of serving the world as God intended. And Abraham is going to begin the reversal of all of this by believing God and trusting him. It wasn't some kind of magical curse that God uttered that transformed the world into a broken and miserable place. It was the selfishness and ambition of humankind in the face of the good instruction that God provided. This is why the Bible takes such a negative view of kingship. It would have been alright if we could have stuck with the model that God instituted in Eden. But unfortunately, that is not the case, and whatever we try to do as humans is going to be, at best, a dim shadow of what God had intended. This is why we had opposition to kingship in Samuel, and a negative view of the kings as we continue through the narratives concerning both the original kingdom and the divided monarchy. It was always going to end in the death of function, followed by an exile that would be emphasised by the death of a generation. Let's move on. God has told the man that he will return to the dust, and there's a double play on that use of dust, because on the one hand, dust reflects the common experience of humanity, which means death. We've already said many times that the man is going to die. But he will return to the dust, also because the dust is where he came from. Dust is the world of mankind outside the dwelling place of God, outside of the Garden of Eden. Out there the man becomes one of the multitude, no better than anyone else. Except that with his newfound and ill-gotten wisdom, he is in a position to raise himself up over his brothers. But in the eyes of God, if he is not going to function in the way that God set him apart to function, then he's no better than the vast innumerable multitude of indistinct and unremarkable individuals from which he came. And that is why God can say, for you are dust and you will return to dust. That's not just exile from the place of honour and privilege. It's the death of function in that the man ceases to act according to his status as image bearer. He still has the status, but he's not doing the job and the death of his body he'll follow
0: and on that uh, rather ominous note we'd better leave it there and we'll pick up the study where we left off next time on the answers to giant questions podcast but for now it's time to get into some giant questions and some giant
1: answers uh, from our listeners i want to hear your giant questions you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Kiwa,
0: a new listener, and hopefully I said that name right, uh, and member of the Answers to Giant Questions Discussion Group on Facebook, uh, welcome Kiwa. Asked, I have a question about the seed of the serpent. It's about whether the kingdom of darkness is breeding spiritual entities, i.e., this kingdom is actually growing. Some context I was recently involved in a pretty wild deliverance that consisted mainly of disembodied Nephilim and some ex divine council members, pre Psalm 82, I presume, which took place over four weeks of fasting and prayer. One of the entities said it was born in the body and had never been anywhere else and was five years old. It was a spirit child of the host captive, and Ra, who said he is ex-divine counsel. FYI, the captive host had no idea of divine counsel or Deuteronomy 32 worldview. didn't know she was captive. She was a brand-new Christian. Uh, but it could have been a demonic psyop or a lying spirit, but something about it caused me to consider it was real. So I'm trying to gain a theological understanding of it,
1: if indeed there is one. Cheers. Okay, well... That is certainly one of the more interesting questions I've had in a while, and I'm really glad you sent that in, Kiwa. And thanks also for the positive feedback that you left for us in the Answers to Giant Questions discussion group on Facebook. That really keeps us going. I'm sure you can imagine that uh, we get all kinds of attacks from all kinds of places. Uh, going through a bit of that now. So a bit of encouragement every now and then really makes my day. Well, let's get to the question. Is the Kingdom of Darkness growing in terms of numerical growth in the spiritual entities opposed to God and his people? Or can demons have babies? You'll notice that I sort of removed from the equation this terminology around the seed of the serpent, and I did that because, although that's a legitimate application when we're talking about the Nephilim, as a fulfilment of the statement in Genesis 3.15, I actually don't think that in contexts later than the time of the giants that phrase still works in the same way as far as numerical growth is concerned. Because I would consider that it's the works of the individual that determine whether they are the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. I won't go into that here, although I did talk about it in a recent episode, so you can always refer back to that. That was in the episode called Seed versus Seed, which I think was episode 10 in this current season. And the purpose behind that was to disambiguate from this teaching that you often hear called the Serpent-Seed Doctrine, which I talked about extensively in the late episodes of season one, and which continually comes up here and there in questions that get sent into the show. And as I say, I'm happy to take those questions. But I do want people to go back to the earlier material and listen to those because you might find your answer there.
0: Well, uh, sounds like you just answered that question.
1: So that's a wrap.
0: Uh, see everybody. Uh, yeah. everybody.
1: Wait, wait a minute. I was just warming up. I want to explain that answer. The question we're tackling here is definitely worth taking the time to address, and it doesn't cover old ground. So I'm more than happy to spend some time on it. Naturally, we're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 6 once we get there in the course of this podcast. But I'm not going to make people wait three seasons before we get there to answer their questions. I think it's fairly apparent from our reading of Genesis so far that the divine rebellion began with a single individual. That seems to be what's implied by the prohibition of eating from that one tree in the garden. That being the case, it seems to mean that the kingdom of darkness, if you want to call it that, has certainly experienced numerical growth in the past. First expressed as the divine rebellion of Genesis 6 among the sons of God or B'nai Elohim. And, of course, first Enoch would put numbers to that group, but I don't think there is a necessity to take those numbers at face value, not that it matters either way. Then we have the matter of what those rebellious sons of God actually did, which is expressed in terms of impregnating human women and causing them to bear offspring known as the Nephilim, or to put that in English, the giants. So we have a multiplication of entities there through childbearing, and you can jump through a million hoops to piece together a doctrine of where the unclean spirits that the New Testament talks about actually come from. Or you can read it quite simply in the matter of a couple of sentences in 1st Enoch. That's not an argument for the canonicity of Enoch, as I go to great pains to point out in my book. You don't need 1st Enoch in the canon to get the affirmations of that book in scripture, because 1st Enoch is a Jewish text, and where's he drawing his ideas from? He's building them from the Hebrew Bible. It's Old Testament theology. We know all that stuff, but what we're really looking for is whether or not there's any truth to the idea that these spiritual entities in rebellion against God continue to multiply today. And I'm going to suggest that that is not the case, as I hinted at a moment ago, and I'll tell you why. But first, I want to clarify some elements of the biblical worldview on this stuff. When we look at an important text like Psalm 82, we need to consider what type of text this is and if it's talking about a historical time period when we might consider those events to have taken place. And I would argue that since the worldview presented in Psalm 82 continues to be spoken of by every biblical prophet, including John the Revelator at the conclusion of the New Testament, that this worldview hasn't gone away because it's still the only paradigm we have for the existence and function of intelligent supernatural evil that we have in scripture. That makes the setting of Psalm 82 clearly eschatological. And as I've been saying many times on this podcast, we've studied enough Old Testament literature by now that we should realize that the apocalyptic worldview of ancient Israel didn't come about in just the last few centuries before Christ. It's embedded in the bedrock of the Torah. So eschatology in the Psalms is not out of place. And you have guys like Dr. Heiser saying that these rebellious sons of God were defeated by Christ, which would put an end to that paradigm. But that's not what we see expressed by the New Testament authors. It seems pretty clear to me that when you've got Paul talking about principalities and powers in heavenly places, and you've got John talking about all these different entities in the book of Revelation, then this world system where the nations are led by the rebellious sons of God by means of human proxies is still very much in effect. So with regard to Psalm 82 and the judgment and death of the gods, I think we need to realize that this is very much an eschatological reality that is its future and not some past event in history. And that leads us back to the question, are they still building an army today? And again, here is the bit where I say no. Certainly that was true in the days of the giants, but that was 3,000 years ago and at least 2,500 years since we saw the last reference to the ability of these entities to reproduce and increase their numbers. I did write about this in my book, And in the interest of being concise, I'm just going to share with you an excerpt from the book, which I think should sum this up pretty nicely. Here's the quote from Answers to Giant Questions. Back in Isaiah 26, we also observe that the passage says that God has destroyed the Rephaim. Certainly, this is a future reference, prophetically speaking, of the future day of the Lord and their final destruction. But it could also be a reference to the fact that the Rephaim tribes were all wiped out. It's most likely both. We know that the Rephaim are ultimately doomed, but that day has not yet come. They have been physically destroyed, and the spiritual destruction will certainly follow. The effective summoning of the Rephaim spirits was only possible during the time of Nimrod because he had joined himself to leviathan, and after his death, this connection to the powers of the great deep was cut off ezekiel thirty one verse fifteen Thus saith the Lord God in the day when he that is the Assyrian went down to the grave, I caused a mourning. I covered the deep for him, and I restrained the floods thereof, and the great waters were stayed. And I caused Lebanon to mourn for him, and all the trees of the field fainted for him. The spirits of the Rephaim, released before the time of his death, may have remained active on the earth during the lifetime of their human hosts, producing more of their kind, which is what necessitated the Karam, or the uh, elimination of the giants at the conquest. Otherwise, they could have just been allowed to die out. Uh, before becoming disembodied at death. A giant progeny born on earth lasted several generations. The last such, named in scripture, being Goliath of Gath and his brothers in the time of David. Supporting the notion that the giants did in fact die out entirely, the Septuagint offers this rendering of Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 47 verse 5 from the Septuagint. Baldness is come upon Gaza. Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of Anak. How long wilt thou cut thyself? As for those remnants of the Canaanite nations that were not utterly destroyed, the ones Solomon had enslaved, we have no evidence to suggest that by Solomon's time there were any giants among their population. Jeremiah's statement above still stands. The Rephaim are all dead, and what will become of their spirits remains to be seen at the day of the Lord. Meanwhile, those spirits roam free. And that's the end of the quote if you want some more context on that i really would encourage you to head over to amazon get a copy of the book so what all this is telling us in a nutshell is that according to Ezekiel and Jeremiah the power of the giants and the fallen sons of god to reproduce more of their kind was cut off for the sons of god this occurred at the flood and for the giants it occurred at the conquest which wasn't actually completed until the time of king david and that means that for the last 3000 years we've not seen an increase in the number of spiritual forces hostile to god And we could argue that while Jesus did not intend to eliminate supernatural evil during his ministry, he certainly had an impact on reducing those numbers. And even more so if we consider the war in heaven described in Revelation 12 in terms of a spiritual reality that was going on during the lifetime of Jesus on earth. Now, in case you were not convinced that the statements from the prophets as quoted were connected to the concept of the sexual reproduction of these entities, I want you to consider the implications of the notion of baldness as used by Jeremiah in the context of the prevailing medical understanding of the day with regard to fertility in women. Some of you might be smiling about this right now. I haven't got the time to explain it here, but I'll point you in the right direction if you don't know what I'm talking about. You need to listen to Dr. Michael Heiser on the Naked Bible podcast, episode number 86. He doesn't talk about this in connection with Jeremiah, but what you're going to learn there will certainly help to explain the use of baldness in that passage. Just to summarise, for those who haven't got the time to go check it out, although I recommend that you do, The gist of it is basically that ancient people associated long hair on women's heads to be directly connected to fertility. Therefore, baldness indicated an inability to reproduce. I'm not going to spend time here on a defence of that view, though, and I won't be wasting my breath on a defence of inspiration in light of a clear-cut case of divine accommodation. Obviously, God knows that the hair on someone's head plays no part in sexual reproduction, but it doesn't really matter if people think that because the message being conveyed is not an affirmation of a scientific nature. The point of that verse in Jeremiah 47 is that the giants are no longer able to reproduce. So that brings us to the next part of this question concerning the things that unclean spirits say about themselves. People often point out that in the Bible, whenever a demon speaks, it says things that are true. And on that basis, a person with their powers of discernment finely tuned might be able to make use of some information provided by these spirits. But a closer examination of the context in which demons speak to people shows that the real intent of the demonic entity is to cause harm or to hinder the work of Jesus and his followers. The Bible provides no instruction that we ought to be speaking to demons and certainly not seeking information from them. There are very good reasons why divination was strictly forbidden under pain of death. And one of those reasons is simply this. People have a way of remembering what they've been told, even if it's a lie. And that word once spoken takes on a power of its own. People don't forget words that are spoken over them and the most powerful lies are the ones that contain just a tiny bit of truth. You see, you ask a demonic entity for its name and start trying to get information out of it and it wants to be believed. It wants to be trusted. It needs you to buy whatever it's selling you. In this case, the desire is to tell you that demons are somehow breeding inside human hosts. This creates fear and insecurity but it makes people less trusting of one another. How do you turn people against one another? Make people believe And other people are breeding demons in them. You ever seen that old horror movie from 1982 called The Thing? I don't know about you, Chris. Have you seen that?
0: I have. It's very memorable and very creepy.
1: Yes. Disgusting. I was (laughs) traumatized for weeks after seeing that as a kid. Indeed. Yeah. Basically, a bunch of explorers in Antarctica find a crashed UFO. And not long after that, members of their party start dying. Eventually, they realize there's an alien life form that's been waiting for them in the ice. And it can mimic any other life form perfectly. So you don't know if the man standing next to you is the alien or not. The crew become paranoid very quickly and start turning against one another because they're all terrified that their fellow man might be the alien. And I think that this is one of the strategies that our enemy uses against us even today. Now, we know better than to let our science fiction inform our Bible reading, don't we? Don't we? But that whole scenario might seem really far-fetched, except for the fact that this demon has thrown in a tiny sliver of truth. Because there was a spirit known as Ra in ancient Egypt. And yeah, he's probably still around somewhere. But this is where it all starts to fall apart. Ra is a territorial entity which places him in Egypt. So you're not likely to find this guy in Australia or America or Europe or New Zealand or Mexico or wherever else in the world you might be. So the story that this entity is telling is beginning to look rather thin. Don't forget that the biblical worldview, in keeping with the culture of the day, Teaches that the lesser gods didn't have jurisdiction outside of the national borders and were therefore powerless in other lands. Obviously, uh, Yahweh being the exception there as the creator. The fallen sons of God never got kicked out of the divine council. That hasn't happened yet. They would like you to think that they were kicked out because that would lead you to underestimate them. The work that Jesus did had the effect of delegitimizing their hold on the nations, but it did not remove them from their place or strip them of their power. Otherwise, You wouldn't have New Testament authors like Paul and John talking about them as realities in their day. That will come at the judgment. However, because of what Jesus did, we now have a way to liberate the people oppressed by these spirits. Because Jesus has removed the legal claim that the forces of evil previously had over humanity, and he has empowered his faithful and allegiant followers, such as you and I, to set the captives free from bondage. So keep up the good work of delivering those enslaved by the forces of evil and don't forget to maintain the spiritual disciplines that Jesus taught us to keep yourself protected. The good thing about apocalyptic literature is that we get to know who wins in the end. Another
0: great show. Thanks for answering that question, Tim. And if other people, other listeners out there have uh, similar questions they would like to ask you and uh, pick your wonderful brain, how can they do that?
1: Well, you can always uh, get hold of us directly through the website. There's a contact form on the front page so you go to giantanswers.com you can submit your questions uh, you can also send us an email at giantanswers@outlook.com, or you can find us anywhere on the social media and just uh, hit us up with a comment uh, or a question there so yeah plenty of ways to uh to get answers to your giant questions Okay, well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Hopefully I'll be better uh, next week. I'm uh, really getting to have it. So, uh, yeah, again, apologies about my voice. Thanks for listening, uh, and stick around for next time when we start to see a little bit of that hope that we've been waiting for. Bye for
0: now. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers
1: to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by like Grave Forsaken at GraveForsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Check out the other podcasts at Raven Creek Go GiantAnswers.com for more answers to Giant Read the box and have a Social button, subscribe, please for the French show. Send us all for
0: questions. Stay tuned with this podcast and get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. God bless. Good day, folks and welcome back. That doesn't sound very exciting. Straight to business.
1: No tomfoolery or lollygagging.
0: No, no hijinks or other such a sort of giant questions at outlook.com. Giant answers at You do it. You do it.
1: <laughs>
0: so what's going on here? By the swat of by the swat? By the snot of your hairy nostrils? That can't be right. I'm I'm very confused.